Which is worse? To want truth and not have truth. Or to have truth but not want truth. Which is worse, to want truth but not have truth, or to have truth but not want truth? In the culture we live in, friends, it is very easy to relax on truth. It becomes very easy not to value it. I believe one of the reasons for this is that we too easily grow familiar with things. In the 1500s, whenever the Puritans had begun to take root a little bit in England, many people were either illiterate or they couldn't get their hands on a Bible. And because of this, people had gone for centuries without hearing the Bible taught or even having a chance to read it. Now, one defining characteristic of Puritans is if you were to study them, their intense, radical love for the Bible. They loved the Bible. You can read about these Puritans, the people of the Bible, traveling for hours just to hear a good, long sermon. They loved a good sermon. Lawrence Chatterton was the first master of Emmanuel College in Cambridge and also one of the translators of the King James Bible that we have today. Chatterton once realized that he had been preaching for more than two hours. Which is when he paused and apologized to the people for being so long. And the people, remember this is in England. The people replied, for God's sake, go on, go on. Such a passionate love for the Bible. For truth. It had been around 1,000 years since the people of England had a Bible that they could read. Michael Reeves says when referring to these Puritans, to hear God's words and in them see such good news that God saves by grace alone. It's like a burst of Florida sunshine into this gray world of religious guilt. See, beloved, truth is something we grow so comfortable with that we lose what truth is supposed to be for God's church. That God's truth is the pillar for the church. In the Catholic church, the pulpit was not at the center of the building. When the Reformation started, guess what? The pulpits moved to the center so that anyone who entered the building, their eyes fell on the pulpit They fell on the word. Beloved, 2 John asks the question, why is truth essential to God's church? With that question, open your Bibles to the book of 2 John if you haven't turned there already, and we're going to go ahead and read the whole passage together. Verse 1 all the way through verse 13. Join with me as we... Read together. Second John 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, 
that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I would hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now when we start this book, we have to understand a few things. Most historians, most biblical scholars believe that this is not written to a lady. This is written to the church. And he is personifying the church as a lady. And this is not uncommon for biblical writers to do. In fact, there's times in Scripture where the church is referred to as the bride and Christ is the groom. And so the Scripture we're dealing with today is a pastor, a man, John, the Apostle John, writing to a church at a time when heresy is prevalent. And John is writing to refute this heresy. And this is a heresy that was called secessionism. And this heresy teaches that Jesus Christ, yes, he came in the spirit. He came as God, but he did not come and be fully flesh. He did not take on the human form in the way that we think he may have. Thus, when he died, he wasn't fully atoning. So it's a different gospel. So the false teaching that John is trying to refute is this secessionist teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. So John, writing to this church, we see a few things. Verse 1 through 3 teaches us first that our knowledge of the truth unites us in love. That our knowledge of the truth unites us in love. What John is wanting to say here in first, first in verse 1 through 3, is that here's how truth and love work. Here's how they work together. John is saying that I love you in truth, but also other people love you who know the truth. If you read in verse 1, it says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, 
And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So he's not just saying that he loves this church. He's saying that everyone who knows the truth loves this church. That they love these people. So we can see a common theme being, theme being a, uh, started here at the very beginning. is that our understanding of the truth is what unites us. That our knowing of the truth is what unites us. It's saying that the reason that we love one another, the reason that our hearts are knit together is because of our mutual knowing of the truth and that truth abiding in us. Now, I'm not talking about a mental assent to the truth. I'm not talking about academy kind of knowing. I'm not talking about going to a classroom and writing it down so that I can know it for a test. I'm talking about it indwelling you. I'm talking about a truth that penetrates the soul. Truth that is so ablaze with God's presence that wherever it goes, it leaves a brand. See, this is not knowledge of the academy. This is the love of truth. It is our knowledge of the truth and our love for that truth that unites us. This is what John is saying. He's saying, though this church, or if another church does not even know you, they love you because they know the truth. And that truth is what unites us. See, love, our love for the truth, love is never empty. You could say that love carries a backpack with it. Love does not exist in a vacuum because love that has no depth is not love. See, love is an emotion, and it's a good emotion that God has created, but brothers and sisters, it's subjective. Things that are subjective must always be gripped by something that's objective, something that doesn't move, something that is stable. Love is fickle if it is not fastened to truth. Truth is the pillar. Love is the garland. Love is what makes truth beautiful. Truth is the chain. Love makes it a golden chain. Beloved, if you have truth without love, truth will be hated because it's no longer beautiful. Truth and love are both essential but with different roles. Truth is the facility, love is the hospitality. Truth is the husband's sacrificial leadership of his wife. Love is when the wife makes his steps beautiful. John says that our knowledge of the truth is the avenue by which love is unleashed on God's people. See, we're already seeing how truth and love work together, and they are both essential, but they work in different ways in order to build and unify God's people. Have you ever been sitting somewhere at your job or on a vacation, and you strike up a conversation with someone? And you begin to end the conversation through the things that they say and through the little verbs that they might use. You begin to smell the aroma of Christ. And you start to hear the things that Christ loves coming out of their mouth. I had an occasion like this happen at my work. I had a brother. I didn't know who was a brother. He showed up at my work and he was starting to, he was starting the job and I had the job of training him. So I asked him the question that I ask every new guy. 
What are you into? What do you like to do? First thing out of his mouth, well, I love to spend time in the Word. And I was like, oh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the Word? And he says, man, I love to study the Bible. And I was like, brother, you're here with me. See, it's that kind of knowledge of the truth that unites us. We don't have to know one another, but we, don't, but we do know the truth. And that knowledge of the truth, that love for the truth, is what compels us, unifies us, directs us, and helps us love our brother whom we may have never met. That's beautiful. That's truth. And that's what truth does. It binds us together, chaining us to one another, building us on top of the teaching of the apostles and the cornerstone, which is Christ. Truth builds, love unites. See, one of the beauties of the church is that we don't have to love each other because we are lovable. We don't have to love each other because we are lovable. We don't come into this building thinking, I wonder if everyone will be in their best dress today so that I can love them. We think that's absurd, right? Brothers and sisters, Satan, the world, and the flesh will teach us to think this way. The subtle deceptions of Satan will teach us to think that we cannot love what is not attractive. We think that the only way we will ever be acceptable is if we make ourselves attractive. But brothers and sisters, the love of Christ, the love that he has for his children, and the love that we can have for one another is not a fickle thing. It's not like the house cat who loves you one second and holds a grudge the next. Because God's love is faithful. It is because God never loves imperfectly. His love is never divorced from truth. This is what we have in Christ. John is saying here that we will love others that love the same truth that we love. And our love for that truth, our love for God's truth, will unite us to the end. As he goes on in verse 4 through 6, he says, I rejoice greatly to to find some of you, your children, walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. See, what we understand from this passage is that truth does two things. For our love. Truth is the forerunner of our love. And truth is the fuel of our love. Truth is the forerunner of our love. And truth is the fuel of our love. See, what we have in verse 1 through 3 is how do truth and love work? What we have here in verse 4 through 6 is how do truth and love do the work? 
It's like we're going in the kitchen now watching the chef do the work. Verse 4 through 6 is John's explanation of how truth and love work together in order to bring about a certain outcome in which is the love for one another. You know, at first glance, after you, if you read this passage, it looks as if there's two commandments. Walk in truth and love one another. One of them being a pastoral plea and the other one just being do this. But there are not two commands here. Yes, it looks like there's two commands, but there's really not two commands. There is one command with an instruction manual. What John is saying is that truth truth and love walk hand in hand. He's not saying here that truth and love are in each side of the spectrum acting as guardrails for our Christian life. As if we're trying to walk up a staircase and we have to hold each side in order to walk the Christian life well. We have to hold truth in one hand and love in the other in order to be a faithful Christian. This is not what John is saying. There's a reason why the scripture says, speak the truth in love. He's not saying that love and truth are on different sides of the spectrum. That it's not like a a staircase He's not saying this. Instead of truth and love as the dynamic duo of the Christian walk, John is saying that walking in accordance with God's commands is how we love one another. Walking in accordance with God's commands is how we love one another. See, our knowledge of the truth, our walking in that truth, enables us to love each other well. The command is to love one another. But we love one another by walking in the truth. If you look at verse 4, it says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded, as we were commanded by the Father. And then he gives the command. And then he goes down to verse 6. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And then if you come to the end of verse 6, so that you should walk in it. Friends, what he's talking about here is he's giving two parallel statements. One in verse 4 and one in verse 6. And he's using these parallel statements to give us an idea of what he's doing. He's showing us that truth Truth is what guards the Christian life, and love is fueled as a result of that truth. So the parallel statements, walk in truth, walk in it, walk according to God's commandments, is what better helps us understand verse 5 that says, love one another. It makes it appear as if we can't love one another unless we walk in truth. This is the point John is trying to to bring up. He's saying, bring truth to your eyesight so that you can love each other. If you don't have truth, you cannot love. See, this is the beauty of the gospel, and this is the importance of knowing the gospel, knowing the truth of the gospel. Because, friends, if we lose truth, we lose love. 
See, God gives truth with an intended end, love. What happens is that the world, friends, the world and churches fall victim to skipping over truth in order that we might have love. We say, no, you just need to love one another. Just love each other. When there's no guardrails to show us what that love is. We don't know what love is if we don't have truth. Now the desire for love is good. It's a good desire. But the problem is that people misunderstand that truth defines love. Truth defines our love for one another. See, truth and love are not like two sides of the same coin. No, it is much deeper than that. As I said, truth fuels our love. Love without truth is like a jet that sits in a hangar but never flies. A car that never drives. It is missing its purpose. Beloved, do not fall victim to the subtle, deceptive sweetness of our culture that tells you you can love without truth. Friends, this is destructive. And it will destroy the church. It will destroy your walk. It will destroy your family. Because this is how Satan comes in the back door of your spiritual walk. If you miss truth... You cannot love. But if you love without truth, there is a catastrophe waiting at the end. Our postmodern world will subtly teach you through TV shows, movies, through sports, through romance, and anything they can get their hands on that you can have love without truth. That you can get to know someone in a romantic way without addressing what they will believe, what they do believe. Friends, it is a recipe to explode. Friends, these subtle deceptions are what the the religions in this nation will tell us as well. That you can have unity with Muslims. That you can have unity with Buddhists. That you can have unity with Hindus. That you can have unity with Catholics. That you can have unity with a false gospel. That you can have unity with A gospel that is heresy. You can have unity with anyone as long as you're willing to sacrifice everything in your power for the sake of love. Friends, this is the world that Martin Luther lived in until he erupted it with truth. The world will say everything for the cost of love, but Jesus says everything for the cost of truth. Brothers and sisters, Satan has an uncanny ability not to completely destroy something. Please listen to this, brothers and sisters. Satan has this uncanny ability not to, to completely destroy something, but to invert its order for which it was created and watch it destroy itself. Think back. Did God actually say that serpent of old in Genesis 3? Did God actually say God gave the fruit of the garden for Adam and Eve to enjoy except for the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. God created the trees of the garden that man and woman could be caretakers, stewards of his creation. But instead, at the deception of Satan, the creature wanted to be the creator. Notice, inversion of the created process. See, Satan doesn't necessarily want to destroy you, but he wants to disable you. He wants to maim you. He wants to make you start working for his kingdom. As mentioned earlier, John is making even more clear that love never leads truth. But truth leads love. Because the one that leads will feed the other. If love leads, love feeds a subjectivity to the truth. We end up defining truth by what we love. Love becomes the scale by which truth is measured. The result is that whatever we feel will determine what we believe. Our emotions will be what everything else has to sift through. Truth becomes subjective rather than objective. You know the old saying, you are what you eat. You may have heard that once or twice. When truth eats from the hand of love, truth takes on prejudice. Like a wooden board sitting out in the hot sunshine after a constant rain, it will dry up and it will warp. But when love feeds at the hand of truth, love takes on faithfulness. Truth must not be cloaked in love, but love must be cloaked in truth. You might say, Jansen, doesn't Scripture say that God is love? Yes, very, very much so. In fact, in the book before this, 1 John, it says that God is love. In fact, it says in this book before, in the book before this one, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The difference between God's love and ours is that opposed to ourselves, God's love never compromises truth. God's love doesn't shift based on what the culture feeds us. God's love, when it says that God is love, it implies the fact that God also holds truth out there. God does not compromise on his truth in order to enforce his love. He doesn't do that. But we do. We'll pull back truth and give out love. We'll say, hey, I'm going to love you, and I won't ask what you believe. I'll just say I love you. But I don't know who you are, so how can I love you? When Jesus is before Pilate, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, the Scripture says in verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is Jesus speaking. Friends, Jesus does not compromise truth for the sake of love. Now, I might also ask the question, why is John spending this time in verse 1 through 6 on the commandment to love one another? Why don't we just skip to verse 7 where it's talking about deceivers and how to not greet deceivers or how to deal with deception? See, John, what he is doing in verse 1 through 6, and I want us to have a clear understanding of what he's doing here, and this is why he gives us six verses before he gets to seven. He is clarifying. He is fine-tuning how love and truth work together in order that we might more clearly see deception for what it actually is. If our lenses are not clear, then we cannot see what it actually is. This, verse 1 through 6, is John turning on the windshield wipers. He is taking a cloth to our lenses and saying, Now look with clarity. He is saying, let me remind you of the command and how we fulfill that command. Beloved, in what ways are we compromising? In what ways do you compromise truth for the sake of love? Maybe it's a situation at work where you know that you need to share the gospel with someone. I mean, a specific person. And even though you know it will change your relationship with them forever. Maybe it's a similar situation, but with a family member. Maybe you have a family member who needs to hear the gospel, and you put it off for so long because you're worried about what they're going to think about you after, or how your relationship will be hindered with them after. Friends, these are real concerns, and they can create drama in a family. But here's the thing. Is their eternity worth our silence? Friends, we need to obey Christ. We need to hold forth his truth. Now this is where John turns the corner. This is where John finishes in verse 6 and he comes to verse 7. And now in verse 7 through 11 he begins to address those who will come and deceive them. So read with me in verse 7 through 11. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have come have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Friends, I want to share with you two things. Two costs. If we are deceived and if truth 
Friends, if truth is compromised, if we lose truth, there are two costs. The first of these is our truth or understanding of the atonement. Notice when we read in verse, in verse 7 how John starts off. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember, John was writing to people about refuting this false doctrine at the hands of these people who were called secessionists. Specifically, the teaching of the secessionists, and I explained a little bit earlier, is that they did not hold to the literal body of Jesus, or that Jesus actually came put on flesh in contrast with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, that says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John is writing this church to this church in order to deal with early church heresy. Now notice another implication of this, friends. If Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, then he, then he did not rise in the flesh. And that means there's no resurrection. That means that one day when Christ returns, we will not be raised as bodily beings. There's no resurrection because there's no flesh. So John is writing this church to deal with this heresy. And friends, this was a big heresy in the early church. Some of the first heresies that attack the early church is that one thing. Is Christ who he said he was? Is Jesus who he said he was? Was he fully God? Was he fully man? Did he do all the things that he said he would do? Did he actually do those things? Sound a lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? Did God actually do that? Did Jesus actually say those things? Deception. See, they're asking the question, was Jesus actually 100% God? And was he 100% man? Was Jesus who he said he was? Now this was a destructive heresy that John feared would creep into the church and destroy what they had worked for. Now I want to sh share this in light of another heresy that is more common today. It's the teaching that, not did, that Jesus did not come in the flesh, not that, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, but it's that Jesus came in the flesh and he wasn't God. Friends, that runs rampant today. Was Jesus actually God or was he just a good teacher? Was he just a good man who did a lot of amazing things and yeah, they reported them as miracles, they wrote them down as miracles, but we can't really trust those biblical texts because it was written by a man, right? Friends, it's not based on the divinely inspired word. And it will cripple the Christian faith as well if we are not careful. Verse 8 says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win, but may win a full reward. Now, what is he talking about referring to this full reward? You can go to the Gospel of John and find that he was referring to when we see passages like John 6, 27 that says, 
Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. This passage is not teaching that we have to work for eternal life. But we will work because of eternal life that we have been given in Christ. The passage we just read in John says that the Son of Man will give it to us. But is John saying in, in 2 John, where we're, at, where we're at in verse 8, that we can lose eternal life? That we can somehow lose our salvation, thereby not gaining the full reward? Friends, he is not. When you go to works, you go to the scriptures, and you understand that what you can't gain by your works, you cannot lose by your works. Galatians 3, 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So it is not like there's this divine trade-off. Where God saves us and then hands the reins over to us and says, now make yourself holy. God is not saying, hey, I'm going to do all the work beforehand and then I'm going to let you follow me. Now there's going to be some problems because you're going to fall away from me, then you've got to be saved again and you're going to fall away from me. That's not what Jesus, that's not what the scripture is teaching. This book, 2 John, is not teaching that we can lose our salvation. No, God's hand is over all of it. Think about the way that we talk about goodness. Oh, he's a good person. They're a good family. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. But there is a problem when we begin to say, God, you have to act within my definition of goodness. There is a problem when we say, no, God, I am king. You are my subject. When we say, God... I think this is not good. Friends, it might mean that God defines goodness differently than you. It might mean that our goodness is not a frame by which we must hold up to the Godhead and say that he has to act within these parameters in order to be good. No, God is good. And we don't get the liberty to determine that. So there's not this divine trade-off. Romans 8, and you'll see real quick, if you just go to Romans 8, it says that God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he conforms to the image of his son, he justifies, he glorifies. We can't do anything to save ourselves, and we can't do anything to separate ourselves. Now this does not give us liberty to live how we want. We might read this and say, well, then I get to do whatever I want, right? No. Scripture even says in James that faith without works is dead. And this means that the evidence of our faith is works. So if somebody claims with their mouth that they know Jesus and they love Jesus, but there is no work to prove it. There is no evidence in a continual form. Friends, it doesn't take a Ph.D. to understand they are not regenerate. They don't know Jesus. There is no faith to produce that work. 
But what John is addressing here is not losing salvation, but losing the teaching of salvation, losing the truth of salvation, losing that doctrine that saves us, that if we know the truth, we can love the truth. Because if we lose that, if we lose the nugget of truth, then we will lose the atonement itself. We lose what we are saved from and saved for, that we don't understand that we are sinners under the hands of an, a wrathful God who hates sin but also extends grace to undeserving sinners. To say it in a more condensed way, we lose truth. John draws out this contrast between, between those who go on ahead of the teaching of Christ and those who abide in the teaching of Christ. Notice those two different phrases there. Those who go on ahead and those who abide. The contrast between those who go ahead of the teaching of Christ and those who are stationary and rooted in the teaching of Christ. Brother and sister, we must be careful not to lose the gospel in light of pragmatic advancement. Let me explain what I mean. What does it look like to go beyond the gospel? To start saying what it doesn't say or to stop saying what it does say. We live in a culture that defines social advancement as the greatest good. Be better. Try harder. Be the best you. Be the best you that you can be. You don't have to go any further than to turn on your TV at night and start watching a sporting event. Pay attention to the commercials. Pay attention to what they say. Pay attention to the subtle, deceptive words that they slip in. Friends, it indoctrinates us. It catechizes us. It teaches us that the more we are glued to the television, the more we are catechized to think like the world. The more we look at the books that are not God's word, the more we gaze at the world, the more we become like the world. The less the truth abides in us. This kind of thinking creeps itself into the church. And it makes us think that we have to add to the gospel to make it attractive so that we can attract people. Beloved, if the gospel isn't enough to get people, if Jesus isn't enough to get people, he will, be, he will not be enough to keep them. He will not be enough to keep them. They will not stick around. If they don't love Jesus, then they won't stick around. A culture and a church needs to be framed in a way that makes people come to church because they love Jesus and they love the church. Not because the church serves them or makes itself attractive to them. The problem is that their ears are closed. The problem is that our eyes drift up from the pages of the word to look to the pleasures of the world. 
our tendency is that we want to say, what can we do to make our church look more appealing to the world so that people will come? Beloved, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God says, abide. The deception that we want to look to the world and and define what God has made, we look to the world to define that. And when we do that, when we go ahead, we lose truth. The cost is the truth of the atonement. The truth that Jesus actually came to this earth to save sinners. That Jesus actually died on the cross. That Jesus was nailed to a tree. That Jesus bled real blood. That Jesus' knees, when, he, when they would give out on the cross, he would feel the splinters from the rough wood pierce his back. That in order to save, Jesus had to be human. And he had to be fully human. Or we're not saved. Let that sit. What is common in churches that compromise truth? It's common to have a faulty view of the atonement. And because of this, a struggle to understand true conversion. We don't know who's saved and who's not saved. We just take a gander and take a guess. What you get is a church full of people who don't really know Jesus because they have compromised truth. Beloved, the church of God can never compromise truth. As you hear preaching, you might think, oh, the pastor is on his hobby horse again. Friends, good preachers repeat the same truth over and over again. Good preachers repeat the same truth over and over again. You know why? Because my ears need it. My ears need truth. Because we dare not lose what we have worked so hard for. Watch yourselves. The second cost of compromising truth is that we lose our love for one another. If you consider what we went through in verse 1 through 6, verses 1 through 3 taught us how truth unites us in love. Verses 4 through 6 taught us how truth is the forerunner of our love, and it's also the fuel of our love. Beloved, satanic deception, deception itself works like this. Satan knows that truth never changes. He knows that. Truth can't change. Truth is rock solid. It's just, do you go to the truth? Truth is there. It can't change. It never moves. And he knows this. And he knows that it will always be the biggest bat on the field. Now we see this example in Jesus when he was in the wilderness. When the fiery darts of Satan came his way, he holds up truth and extinguishes the darts. So since Satan cannot destroy truth, he will hide it. Or he will manipulate it. Where truth, listen to this, friends, where truth becomes so unattractive that we cringe 
rather than shout a hearty amen. Instead of saying, give us truth, we say, wow, that was truthful. Friends, Satan is a professional at making truth bitter. When the people of God begin to stray from the truth, this is when Satan's deception can devour you. We are reminded of Ephesians 6 when Paul discusses the armor of God. Truth is the belt. Now, in ancient times, Romans wore this big belt. It wasn't like our little belts we wear today that tries to, that, you know, tries to keep our pants up or might look good. That's not what belts were like in a Roman soldier's outfit. The belt that he is referring to is not one that we wear, but the belt that holds the whole set of armor together. See, the the belt was big and wide. It was a big old belt, and they would wear it around their waist, and it would cinch down the breastplate. It would cinch down everything on their whole makeup so that when they went out to battle, if they lost the belt, their armor would fall apart. This is why it's called the belt of truth. Think of the image of this Roman soldier. See, when Satan deceives and manipulates truth, he gets past the armor and gets to our love. And love, friends, is a fragile thing. Love is more easily tampered with because it's subjective. If through deception, Satan can change what we love, he can manipulate what we believe is true. Think about that. If Satan can change what we love, he can change what we believe is true. Our love for sin can make us say, but it just feels right. Husbands and wives divorcing one another, people claiming to be homosexuals and also claiming that it's okay with God. Young men dismissing the fact that it is evil in the sight of God to sleep with their girlfriend because it feels right. Truth feeding at the hand of love. If Satan can change what we love, then he can change what we believe is true, what we believe is right. Now, the cost of compromising our truth is our love. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, says this, By this all people will know that you're my disciples. What does the Scripture say? If you have love for one another. So if through deception, Satan is trying to take down our love. Think about it. He's trying to take us down. Satan doesn't just deceive for kicks and giggles, friends. Just so he can control what we love, although that's true. Satan deceives us so that he can get to the heart of what displays to the world that we are God's people. 
Satan deceives, deception comes, and it undermines what makes us gods, what shows the world, the beacon to the world, the lighthouse to the world, the candle is put under a bushel. It doesn't exclaim to the world that we are Christ's, that we are his church. It doesn't show the world that we love one another and that our love for one another shows us, shows the world that we're Christ's. If Satan can take down our love, then he can take down what shows the world that we are his, that we are Christ's. The world will not look on and see a supernatural community made up of people from every different age range, socioeconomic level, color of skin, different ab- difference of background, and see love that defines them all. If we do not love one another, then this church thing becomes a dead religion and not the body of Christ. Love is the heartbeat. Beloved, if we see from the earlier passage that truth unites us in love, that truth is the forerunner and the fuel of our love for one another, then we better protect what we love with God's truth because it is a threat to our unity. It will threaten our unity. Pray that God would keep us from being deceived because of our unity, our love for one another. It is the cost. Our unity, our love for one another is the cost. Think about how gossip And slander can deceptively slither its way through the soft spots of our armor and attack our love. Think of churches who no longer trust one another because their love has been manipulated. This is what deception does. It comes through the back door and it deals with the more fragile parts of who we are and Satan says, now I can make you think what I think. This is why deception is so heinous. Because it tears at the fabric of the church. It makes us be who we are not. It makes us become what Christ has not died for us to be. Beloved, deception is no small matter. It will destroy It will manipulate, it will disintegrate the love that God's people have for one another. Watch yourselves that you be not deceived so that you may not lose heart, that we might not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The fourth thing this passage teaches is is in 10 through 11. That abiding in truth keeps us firm in the face of deception. Verse 10 through 11 say, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. Remember, the teaching is that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Do not receive him into your house. Or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 
Now, it was a common practice at this time to receive traveling teachers. It was common to open your door and be inviting for people who were traveling from town to town and teaching. And so what John was asking them to do was actually against the trend. We think in our own culture, our Western culture, if someone just walks up to your door, it's easy for me not to greet them. It's easy for me to look at them on that little screen at the door, the little camera that shows who they are, and we're like, oh, I don't want to have to deal with that right now. Friends, we live in a culture that is different than the one that John is speaking to, where it's not common to receive people who just come out of nowhere. Hey, you're in town right now? Hey, hang out with us. You can have a seat, you can have a bed, you can have some food, and you can go on your way. So this was a high calling. This was a high command for the people at this time. But it was also understood, friends, that those who greet and receive traveling teachers into their house, whether they want to show it or not, actually show the world that they agree with that teaching. Now what John is showing us here is that taking part in his wicked works is taking part in his deception of the church. Now we might ask, how does greeting someone, taking them into your house, just being kind to someone, even if he teaches heresy, how does that take part in his wicked works? Because brother or sister, your brother or sister in Christ might be deceived to think that what he teaches, what that guy teaches, if you receive him, if you greet him, that he might actually teach something true. How often we gaze at each other, don't we? We watch each other to determine what is true. Some of us have grown up spiritual babies for so long because we all, all we ever saw were spiritual babies. Some of us thought it was okay to continue sleeping around, continue living how we wanted to live, to continue going getting drunk on Friday evenings because everyone else did it who said that they loved Jesus too. Friends, we watch what our brothers and sisters do and we say it's okay if they do it. So the reason that John is saying this here is because it is so easy to let your brothers and sisters watch your conduct and cause their downfall as a result of your misconduct. It is avoiding keeping ourselves from the appearance of evil and the possibility of deceiving ourselves or deceiving our brother or sister in Christ. Now, brothers, we might ask the question, how does this passage reconcile with passages that we find in Matthew 5 or Luke 6 that talks about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you? How do we shun someone at the door, not let someone in even the door of our life, but still love them. See, walking according to God's commandments is how we love one another. So not greeting or receiving the deceiver is how we love one another, but not greeting or receiving the deceiver is also how we love the deceiver. 
Think about it. If we are to affirm, if we affirm their teaching, if we affirm the teaching of false teachers, the people that teach a false doctrine, a false gospel, if we subtly watch them, if we subtly read them, if these people would have accepted them in their house, we would have given subtle affirmation to their teaching, and this would have subtly led them to hell. See, the goal, friends is that we would desire the reconciliation of the deceiver. Though we should not welcome the deceiver, we should not greet the deceiver, and we should cast all deception out of our midst, that does not mean that we hate the deceived or that we hate those who are deceiving. The desire is that they're reconciled to God. In how we love one another, in how we love our enemies, our love must have on the armor. Because if you and I have love without truth, you will greet and receive the deceiver. If you have love without truth, the most loving thing to do, right, is to greet the deceiver. But love with truth, truth in love, truth leading love by the hand, says no. For you will compromise my love for Christ. For you will destroy the very thing that makes us unified. You will dismantle the very thing to which I hold and I place all my hope. You will dismantle it, you will destroy it, you will manipulate it. If you have truth without love, your desire will not to be will be not to see the deceiver reconciled. So love without truth, you'll greet the deceiver, but truth without love, you don't want to see him reconciled. It's more like John and James saying, Jesus, shall we rain fire on him? Thunder, sons of thunder. Beloved, when we turn on the TV. Or pick up a book and see those who preach a gospel that is contrary to what we see in the Bible. Or if we hear from our friends a gospel that is dulling the truth. A gospel that is not the true gospel, but it's tr- it's, it has some hinges or some little pieces of truth in there, but it's not the truth. It is not the full truth. I hope that we desire to see them reconciled. But beloved, do not let them in your life. Do not let their deception in your heart. Or they will, deception will destroy our love for Christ and our love for one another. Friends, if truth does not lead love by the hand, then deception could be close at hand. Let us pray for one another that we would never compromise on truth in order to be more attractive to the world. So, which is worse? To want truth but not have truth or to have truth but not want truth? 
Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us clarity to see the deceptive devices of Satan coming in the mouths of those who may be close to us. Lord, I ask that you would give us clarity, that you would wipe away the delusion of our hearts, of our minds, that we might see your truth more clearly. And that in seeing truth more clearly, we might have a better understanding of how to love each other and how we ought to be on guard against deception. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all conviction to this end. In Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen.